This is Do School Better, a podcast for people who want to transform education. My name is Doris Corda, and for the past several years, I've been training educators. Listen to these episodes and hear about some of the extraordinary programs they've created. We call these pioneers the fire starters. See if you can get some ideas that you can implement yourself to change your own practice. In this episode, Doris speaks with Julia Griffin, humanities teacher and the assistant director of teaching and learning at Hawken Upper School. Julia shares how her humanities department adopted a new academic method that transformed the way their students learned ancient world history and better equipped them with skills like writing and research and critical thinking and public speaking. Hello, Julia. Hey, Doris. Well, I am very excited about this conversation with you. Me too. Yeah, and... Can you start by telling our listeners about yourself? Sure. Um, So my name is Julia Griffin, and I am the assistant director of the Upper School for Teaching and Learning uh, at Hawkins School. I teach humanities, uh, and I actually started my career here at Hawkins teaching humanities uh, low these many, many years ago, um, (laughs) and uh, was a humanities teacher for a long time, and uh, then became department chair, and then uh, assistant director of the, of the upper school last year. Uh, and along the way, um, in those roles, I had the chance to do a lot of work with you in working on the humanities curriculum, which has been really great and has formed, you know, an increasing portion of my, my work with curriculum at the school in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. Kit, I'd love for you to go back to when you came to me about the humanities nine class all those years ago. Describe what happened. Absolutely. So we were, you know, we were at a crossroads moment in the curriculum for Humanities 9. Um, this is ninth grade. The ninth grade required humanities course. So instead exactly of history right. classes and English classes, our ninth graders at Hawken for many years and 10th mm-hmm. graders mm-hmm. have been have had a required uh, humanities course. Exactly. And we were in a moment where um, because of some changes in the schedule and in other aspects of the curriculum across the school, we were revisiting what we do in Humanities 9. And we were talking about different possibilities, trying to figure out, you know, what to do that could help make the curriculum more engaging for students. It's a course that focuses in most ways on the ancient world or on modern connections and the ancient world. And there's a lot that's really valuable about it, but it also can be a, a hard sell with ninth graders, right? You know, why should we yeah. care about these things that happened thousands of years ago? So we were thinking about, you know, maybe it would be interesting to do something that was kind of problem-based or something that where the pedagogy was a little different, but we really weren't sure how. And I... And tell me if this is true, because my recollection of that also was that it was both, you know, how do we make this stuff more engaging for students and also... Mm-hmm. There was a question of we need to do a better job of developing our students skills like writing and critical thinking. It's mm-hmm. And research and public speaking, um, like in a big way, oh, yeah, a, a range of skills exactly that we felt were, you know, hard to teach and that could feel sort of diffused in the humanities classroom sometime, that, sometimes that we're trying to do so many different things uh, all at once that we're not always sure that that it's landing with students. Yeah. So that was another big part of the impetus. So, so then what my what I remember is that you said, "Okay, great, let's do this pilot. Which unit do the kids hate the most?" Yes. <laughs> right? Like 
Yeah, what do they hate the most? I didn't say, is there something they don't like? I said, what do they hate the most? Right, exactly. And I was like, well, I mean, that's not hard. We have this China unit, but it doesn't really feel to anyone like it really works. But we we want to do more with China, not less. But we haven't really figured out how to do that. And you said, you know, how long do you have for it? If you don't try yeah. to pilot this spring. And I, and I said, about three weeks. And you said, perfect, great, let's do it. And so we, so we tried it. So we had eight, we had about eight sections of Humanities 9. And we, we took three teachers. So three teachers and I worked on this initial pilot. And we tried it in those three sections. The other sections kept doing what they were doing. And then at the end of the pilot, we surveyed the students who'd been in it. And um, the student feedback was overwhelmingly positive. You know, it was more, well over 90% of the students said, yes, we absolutely think all ninth graders should have to do something like this as part of their ninth grade humanities experience. So we said, okay, great, good. <laughs> and we, um, and we built yeah, it in. And, and then, I, I just wanted to know, so what did that evolve into? What, what did that pilot evolve into? Yeah. So the, that three week pilot formed the basis with, you know, with some modest changes for what is the first unit of this semester course that ninth graders, that all ninth graders at Hawken take uh, that we call the humanities nine lab. And so the, the content in the pilot was focused on China, on Chinese history and culture in this humanities class. But what we ended up doing with it in the semester course is that that course is focused on identity and culture and conflict in the Middle East. Great. Yeah. So the way that we that we start the course begins where we, we have the room set up as a museum. So there are different artifacts um, all around the room, many of them images. So we'll have photographs and maps and graphs and charts, news articles, things that are just have just been pulled from news in the last few days to a week, books uh, set out on the tables, um, often we'll have some music playing. So and, and content wise, the museum, as we call it, evolves a little bit each semester, partly because the news changes, right? So we'll have some we'll have some photographs. Uh, and some might be like a really urban setting and others might be you know, a UNESCO World Heritage site, sure. you know, out somewhere in the desert. Um, or uh, we try to have some, some images that students aren't going to really know what to do with, right? Things that are puzzling. Um, sometimes we have a caption on them, sometimes we don't. Um, and we try to have some images that are going to complicate whatever story we think many students may be coming into the class with about the Middle East. So we have a real range um, and we spend about 10 or 15 minutes like that. There are maybe 50 or 60 artifacts up usually. So they don't necessarily get to all of them. And then we say, great. So for tomorrow, we'd like you to develop a one minute pitch designed to persuade your classmates of what topic you think we should study further and to, you know, compel them to vote for your topic to, to have that form the basis for our first unit of study in this course. So you're going to decide what we what we learn about, and we want you to write this one minute pitch. And then we say, so how do you think you should go about writing that? <laughs> like, how would you how would you be able to learn more um, in order to like what else do you need to know in order to write a one minute pitch? And we get them started a little bit um, in class, and then they work on it for homework and come back in. They're really excited on this day when they come in to pitch, like they're, they're all revising their pitch and trying to figure it out. And they, it's, it's really fun to see because they picked whatever the topic is. And some of them are, and they're really nervous because they have to get up and do this one minute talk for the class. So they pitch to the class, the whole class yeah. votes on which topics are of the most interest. And we sort the students based on their preferences into 
usually about four teams of four, roughly, um, for the topics that they're going to be exploring in that unit. And the topics range, and it, you know, and it, it varies from semester to semester. Um, it depends on what catches kids' interest. So, you know, there oftentimes there's one, especially in this sort of first unit, where there's something related to ISIS because kids hear about it in the news. Um, especially, I would say, a couple of years ago when we were starting this, it felt like it was in the news all the time. And just in the weeks leading up to the course, you know, ISIS was blowing up World Heritage sites and things like that. But Often there's something, um, so there's something that's that's sort of ISIS or terrorism related. Yeah. Um, but then there are other things, like there there would be there will be one that's about um, you know gender equality, um, or there was one a couple years ago that was really interesting about a trash crisis in Lebanon. So that the and and then it turned out as they they there were these piles of trash. There was an artifact that had that was just these pictures of trash piling up in the streets of Beirut, and they wanted to figure out why. So there are a whole range of topics they pitch, they have these teams, and then as they get into their teams, they have a couple of tasks, right? So one of them is to figure out how they're going to work together as a team and what that means. And then another piece is how do we start to try to figure out what this problem is or what this what this situation is that's happening in the Middle East right now and how it got to be that way. So we try to establish some team norms um, and have them reflect on themselves, what they themselves are like and what kind of skills they bring to a team setting. And then we say, okay, in you know a week and a half, your job is to present back to, the, to this class and to me about the history of this problem. Like, where did this come from and how did it get to be a problem? And what is it, what, it, what is most important for us to know about that? So the big task for them at that point is to figure out how do we learn what we need to know in order to be able to present this back to an audience together in a way that makes sense. So let me, let me ask you something. You now used uh, the word problem. And mm-hmm. I want to, I want to ask what the students were. So it's one thing to say, okay, this is what I want to study and we voted for it and now we're all going to study it. Yes. But it's more than that. These, these teams, when they choose the trash they're choosing problems mm-hmm. that they want to not only understand, but they want to be able to address and present yes. something with their own, you know, maybe not the end all solution, but as, but a solution to the problem. Yes, Correct? exactly. And because that, because that problem formulation, and I would say we wrestle with this because there's a there's a trap here, right? With 14 year olds, if you're saying like, oh, you're going to go solve the problems of the Middle East, like there's a cultural imperialism piece there, and there's like a oh, we can sure. solve all the problems of this region, we fixed Absolutely. it, good. Now we now we can go out to soccer practice. You know, <laughs> um, there's a danger yeah, exactly. there. But there's nothing that gets students to engage or that has the kind of teeth that we need it to have if there isn't a problem. You know what I mean? If it's just yeah. like here's our book report on the topic. It just doesn't work. Um, it isn't nearly as engaging. Well, and I think I think this is really important, though, for the listeners to understand. So if I'm a humanities teacher, this isn't about simply saying, all right, uh, students are choosing what they want to study, which by itself is pretty right. interesting. It's literally, this is a this is a problem in the Mideast that I'm really, really interested in. And so is everybody on my team. We are really jazzed about it. And we're going to take on, you know, understanding this problem. And mm-hmm. uh, while you're right, you're not telling them, we are tasking you 14-year-olds with solving the ISIS problem in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're working on a really tough problem that is not 
solved. Uh, and they're going and they're going to present as a team about it in a way that, that invites their version of solutions. Exactly. So one of the questions that we ask that's put as part of what students have to answer is why hasn't this problem been solved yet? Yeah, that's huge, right? So students tackling ISIS, the first thing students will come up with when they're trying to say, like, what should be done to solve this problem is some student in the group will say, well, we just we just need to bomb the ISIS headquarters. Like, you know, it's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. So then to say, okay, well, if it were that simple, then why hasn't someone done that? Do you think no one else is thinking about this? Probably there are some right. other people trying to solve this problem. So like the first five solutions you come up with, you need to really then dig into why haven't those solutions worked? Well, and because if yeah. it was that easy, right? Like someone would have figured it out. Well, and this reminds me of our very earliest conversations when we were first talking about creating the China pilot also, mm -hmm. where I remember saying, if you go to Hawkins School for your entire K-12 school experience, this is the only three weeks that we in, at Hawkins teach Chinese history. Mm -hmm. is, is a student going to come out of the three weeks, no matter how we teach it, you know, even if they successfully memorize everything a teacher puts in front of them, are they going to come out of it well-educated on Chinese history? And the answer is, well, of course not. No. No. So the question is, if in three weeks, in one three-week unit, you can get kids to come out of that three weeks going, oh, wow, Chinese history, even really distant Chinese history, is not only interesting to me, it's actually really relevant as well. And when they're working on addressing a contemporary Chinese problem, can you get them to go deep in the way that they're solving that or addressing it in order for it to be a quality job, in order for them to be successful at what they come up with in three weeks? It, it has to be based in the cultural and historical context that the contemporary problem has emerged from? And the answer is, of course you can. Well, that's what exactly. you're talking about. So they come in and they're 14 years old and they can tell you in about two minutes, yeah, we can solve this. Let's just bomb them. Right. And the secret sauce in engaging them in caring about all this is everything you just described and how you're setting it up. But the learning that you're getting them to do comes from the questions and the prodding and the guidance that you're doing as you teach them so that they have to go deeper and deeper in order to come up with well put together and analyzed arguments. Absolutely. And that's also why we have an earlier we have an earlier presentation, like a sort of a first checkpoint. That one is really all about defining what the problem is and how it got to be that way. Gotcha. And the second presentation is all about the solutions because the other thing is that students are very quick to jump to the solution, right? Always and then, every time. So are adults, by the way. Everybody it's true. is. We yeah. all are, right? And <laughs> so so if we're not careful, like 17 seconds after they've pitched and formed their teams, some kid has opened up PowerPoint and is already trying to like make the slides for the final presentation. Absolutely. And you're like, whoa, we are way, we are so not there. Right. So, so that's that, brilliant. So the first one, they're not, they're not even allowed to go there. They have yeah. a presentation to do and it doesn't even, you're not even asking them to come up with any solutions. They just have to present the right. problem. Exactly. It's like, you have Perfect. to actually deeply understand the problem and where the problem comes from. Right. So if we go back to 
to the stinking trash in the streets of Lebanon for a minute, which, by the way, like, I think if you're 14, you're like, huh, like, there's all this trash <laughs> in the street. And that, at that moment, like, literally, the, there was this big social media campaign, hashtag you stink, um, that was designed <laughs> yeah. to try to get to raise awareness for this. So, like, there's a problem there, clearly, and it's interesting. So they were trying to figure it out. We had, And then we had this great moment where they're in class, and then they were looking, and they were looking at social media, and they're like, oh, there's a protest happening right now. And someone was, you know, live streaming it and it was happening right now. So it couldn't be any more immediate than that. But then as they tried to get into it, they're like, well, why doesn't somebody just pick up the trash? Well, it turns out like, well, there's no president of Lebanon right now. Like they have an office for the president, but they don't have a president. Well, why don't they have a president? Well, the last president was sent to jail for corruption charges and they haven't been able to to elect a new one. And they're like, well, and I said, well, why why haven't they been able to elect a new one? Like, how hard is it? And they're like, hmm, you know, and they're looking and they're looking and they're reading. And then one of them says, well, there's something about like there's a religious requirement. Like the president president has to be of a particular religion. I'm like, really? Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Weird. We don't have that in this country, do we? No. OK, so so tell me more about that. So they're, try- they're trying to figure it out. And then it turns out they get into all these details about the Lebanese political system, which, by the way, I had only read about the day before. Like, I'm not an expert in Lebanese politics, but I had tried to get into it the day before when I knew this was going to be a topic. Yeah. So yeah, we say we say that this is all about <laughs> as a teacher, you have to stay one step ahead of them. That's exactly. It. Yeah. Exactly. So it turned out that there there are these quotas for many office, many political offices in Lebanon that are designed to sort of maintain balance uh, between different religious groups. So, but then through as I continued to ask them questions, like they they had read an article about that, but they didn't really get it or they didn't really get why it mattered. But then as you start to look at this and you're like, oh, okay, so the president needs to be of this religious background. But are there any eligible candidates or suitable candidates who are of that religious background? Like they they kept going further into it. And then they started to see the ways in which the you know legislative body was deadlocked um, and they had to have, you know, 40 percent of this and 40 percent of that in terms of the composition of the group. And that they they started to figure all of that out. And then I said, well, huh, why is there that kind of religious diversity in Lebanon? Like, where does that come from? You know, and then they start to try to figure out, like, well, how long has Lebanon been a country? And they're like, huh. And they yeah. start looking yeah. and they realize it's been like since like then, whatever, the 1940s, the 1950s. Um, and they start as they go, they start to figure out the colonial legacy and they start to get into all these really interesting questions about religious dynamics of that region um, and of Lebanon particularly. Um, exactly. And so then all of a sudden they're really interested because somehow all of this like leads back to why no one has been able to clean up the trash <laughs> exactly but here's what you did so you set them up they've got a unsolved problem that they've chosen that they care a lot about and right. it's real they're going to be presenting to a real audience and you, you'll get to that in a minute a mm-hmm. solution but you're as a teacher you're keeping them where they need to be by staying one step ahead and asking good why questions mm-hmm. right you just keep asking good why questions coming out the other end i bet the t- the students at least in my experience the students barely remember you were there it all right. came from them right. but you're you're getting them to go deep into the areas that they need to go so that they can come up with something and they're in the meantime that's great. So keep going. So then what? So, right. So they, so they do this presentation that's defining the problem. Then there's a moment where they sort of split to go a little bit more individually into a kind of deep dive into what they think a good solution could be. Um, so they, after they, you know, do the first presentation, they get feedback, they reflect on that. Then they spend a couple of days researching individually and writing uh, a, re- a position paper about what they think the best solution would be. 
they come back to their team, they share their papers, they share their solutions and their ideas. And then they have this really great moment of kind of negotiating it out and talking as a team and sort of sorting through and arguing through, you know, pros and cons and elements. Almost always they end up bringing in elements of different people's solutions. It's not that, you know, one person's solution somehow magically was just right. Yep. So they are sharing the sources that they found at this point and then running into sources that disagree with each other and trying to navigate that and what do they do with that um, and ultimately then putting together a final presentation which is going to recap the sort of history and definition of the problem briefly but move into the solution and for that presentation then we bring in whoever else we can find so we bring in you know we'll bring in other faculty um, or you know, if, if and when we can get them, other sort of parents or community members who are interested in the topic. And why um, is this important? Can... Why why is it important? It's so important. But why why do you think it's important that you're bringing people in? It's not just teachers and parents that they're going to present their final uh, solution to. Well, because it raises the stakes so much, right, for students, especially if they think there are people who know more than they do about the topic yeah exactly <laughs> right exactly People who, who yeah. like so someone who really knows their stuff yeah. um that that is uh that clarifies the mind wonderfully right around like the need to work on this task because you you know like your parents are going to say that it was great no matter what you do um but the the idea that there is this there is somebody who has some expertise in the field and might ask you a really tricky question and yeah. you know and that you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna look silly if you don't really have a good solution. Yeah, you um, have to do your homework. You have to have yeah. you have to have some research and facts to back up what you came yeah. up with. You can't just blow through it. Right? Exactly. That's great. So coming out of the reason all this is happening is what what did what did you experience? What did the students experience coming out of this? And what did the other teachers see as the results of this? Why is it spreading at Hawkins so much? Yeah. Yeah. So 2015-16 was the first year of Humanities 9, right? So yeah. then last, those ninth graders then were in 10th grade this past year. And members of the Humanities 10 team started to come up to us in the halls and say like, oh my gosh, we had this research project and they blew it out of the water. They did such a good job. They, they asked these great questions. They knew how to try to find sources and find answers or they'll come up and be like oh my goodness the public speaking was so much better out of the gate right away we didn't even know what to do with ourselves um or so so they clearly other teachers who didn't even necessarily know a lot about what was going on in human lab got interested because they saw the impact for students um, and so cool. that within our department is really where the conversation um, has moved to is okay how can we do some more of this this kind of work with kids and then, as you know, there are other pockets where this work is starting to happen um, across the upper school. So yeah, talk about what you're doing in the upper school, in your new role, where you're not only leading the humanities department, but now in our entire upper school curriculum. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really exciting. Um, it's been great for me to get to expand my view of the school beyond the humanities department and to get to start to partner with teachers um, in different departments. So I'm continuing to get to have conversations with people who are really eager and excited to try something different and to really try to focus on like, you know, what happens when you're really focused on the, the individual needs of a student and how can you give them feedback that helps them do the learning that they need to do and the corda method approach is honestly the best way that i have found to be able to 
give students that opportunity to grow. And so uh, that's really what I'm trying to do is in working with teachers um, is to get them to find a way. And isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it used to be, and it's still, it's still transitioning from this, but being a good teacher meant being a good master of your domain and the domain was some content area. And the definition of good teaching and what it is to teach is changing. And I'm so mm-hmm. glad that it is because look at the, look at the things you've done with your humanities team. Look at the kinds of things, you know, the, all these teachers at Hawken are building mm-hmm. together with other teachers, together with you. It's fantastic. Well, it's incredibly exciting because it continually reminds us that it's not about us. It's not about me and how much I love this Wordsworth poem or this Charlotte Perkins Gilman short story or this thing. Like I used to wonder as a teacher why it was that sometimes I felt like I was the, I was the worst teacher when I was teaching something that I myself really loved. Like I used to have this problem with Thoreau and Emerson. I would go in and I would be like so off the charts excited and the students would be like, "Ah." um, right. So, but that was in those moments, it was about me, right. It was about like my love of Thoreau (laughs) and that was why it wasn't working. Yeah, exactly. And the line, (laughs) the line that, you know, I'm going to use, even though People who've been working closely with me, like uh, you, Alice and Tim, a lot of others <laughs> will probably throw up in their mouths because you've heard it so much. It's not about what you teach. It's about what they learn. And and the interesting thing to me was that that idea for many years was actually a profound idea. It sounds yeah. so like matter of fact, well, duh, of course that's true. Right. But it's actually kind of embodies the shift that we're talking about. It does. It's, and it's really exciting. Julia, it was phenomenal to talk to you. Your work is brilliant. And Oh, my goodness. Uh, Thank I'm you. Thank so, you so much for all of your help. <laughs> well, I Thank love, I love uh, working with you, and I look forward to the work we, we are going to continue to do together. Me too. Yay. Yay. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. For more information about our training, go to wildfire-education.org.